Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. We're taping this the morning after an Iranian missile strike on U.S. targets in Iraq. I was wondering if you could give us a sense of how you think the Iranians are thinking about all this. How are the Iranians thinking about how we got here? How the Iranians are thinking about where we are? How the Iranians might be thinking about where we might be going? Do you talk about that at all? I really can't get into that. I I can tell you from my vantage point as a senior member of the IC, we have unencumbered access to, you know, the senior leaders of the Defense Department and the ability to ensure that uh, we are providing them uh, everything that we know and understand. And a key part of what we do is what I can't necessarily share with you right now, but what you're asking is, yeah, we do those kinds of assessments to make sure that uh, they're able to think through and, you know, ultimately it's uh, provide best military advice. For, you know, the Defense Intelligence Agency, key mission for us is, really kind of is the only all-source agency, is we look at all the, uh, you know, collection NGA has, the National Security Agency has, the rest of the members of the IC to bring all that together to give you a holistic view of what those threats look like and what the technology looks like. I had a conversation with a couple of futurists, and I said, is there something that's coming out that you see as such a game changer that gives you concern? They said not necessarily that as much as it is, how do you operationalize it? Who's got the lead in hypersonics? Who's got the fastest computers? Over the course of the next decade, I think you'll see a number of nations that will have those capabilities. Uh, Hypersonics, obviously China, Russia, are moving in that direction, and I think you'll see those capabilities over the next 10 years. Key thing for us is how do you understand it? How does it operate? And then, you know, how do you defeat it? What's the defeat mechanism? Making sure that there's not a game-changing technology that shows up on the battlefield that we didn't see and that we can't feed back to the Defense Department to go, this is how this operates, and then we're going to team with you on how we beat it. Lieutenant General Robert Ashley is the director of the Defense Intelligence Agency, a position he has held for over two years. General Ashley is a career Army intelligence officer with combat deployments to the Balkans, Iraq, and Afghanistan. General Ashley and I just sat down to discuss his career, his agency, and the key national security issues facing our nation. This is the latest in our series of Leaders of the IC. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Lockheed Martin. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. (laughs) 
As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. General Ashley, welcome to the show. Well, Michael, thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time out of what I know is an extraordinarily busy schedule to join us. I know there's lots to talk about. I'd love to start, sir, by giving our listeners a sense of who you are. So maybe a couple of personal questions. Why did you join the military and why did you decide to make it a career? So you, you, you look back and when you, you, you think about, you know, kind of your lineage, um, my brother was in the Air Force. Uh, my dad was a soldier in Korea. Came back, spent about a year after the Korean War working as a mechanic and said, there's more to life. I want to do something else. And then he enlisted in the Air Force and spent 20 years in the Air Force. So there's a pretty heavy legacy of military uh, in my family. And then when I was at Appalachian State, got into the RTC program, uh, Army, not Air Force, even though my dad was a soldier and an airman, took that route. That was the program they had and, uh, you know, kind of knew what I wanted to do, which was wanted to go in the intel field and wanted to start my career with the 82nd Airborne at Fort Bragg, and I was fortunate enough to be able to do both of those. So, so how was it that so early in your career that you identified Intel as what you wanted to do? So actually it was in college that I identified that. Um, about half of Army intelligence will go combat arms for the first three or four years. It's what we call branch detail, and then they'll come back to MI for their advanced course when they're a, a really junior captain. And I was part of the 50% that did not get branch detailed. I finished pretty high in my class at App, which was very fortunate, and got uh, intelligence. And that's what I've done the entire time. So I was never a combat arms guy. I started right off in intelligence. But I knew for my first assignment, I wanted to go down to a division level and kind of work at that tactical level to understand what it meant to support troops in the field. And what would you, what pitch would you make to a young officer today for why they should think about intel? Um, you get involved in everything that's going on uh, on the battlefield. I mean, really, the day starts and ends with what's happening in intelligence. You get a chance to interface with senior leaders, commanders. You're on the operational side. You're on the planning side. So everything revolves around your ability to provide that kind of decision advantage to a commander. And that could be a commander at a company, at a battalion, all the way up to having a conversation with the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or a combatant commander. General, you served in Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan. Are there any moments from your career, your time in those three places that really stand out to you? I think really probably the most uh, was my tour in Iraq when I was a brigade commander. And so we took the brigade in. You have about a thousand soldiers whose lives are in your hand. And your responsibility is to make sure that they and their families are prepared for that deployment and what really weighs on you is the decisions that you make because their lives hang in the balance that, you know, have you trained them properly? Have you equipped them properly? Have you made good sound decisions? Do you understand the risk that they're subject to and the missions that they're performing? And so the fact that uh, not that someone who didn't bring everybody home made a bad decision, one of the things that I was uh, most uh, I'm not sure, please isn't the right word. I think we were most satisfied is that mm. everybody came home mm. uh, from that deployment. Mm. And what point in the war were you there? So as a brigade commander, I was there in October of 07 and the entire calendar year of 08. Yeah, it's a pretty hot time. 
uh, was the kind of the middle uh, to the tail end of the surge. Right, right. General, for the last two years, you've run one of the key agencies in our intelligence community, uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency. Can you talk a bit about the agency's mission, how it fits into the broader IC, and how it differs from the agency that everybody thinks about, which is CIA? So let me put it in really kind of simple terms. Uh, We provide foundational intelligence and intelligence on the operational environment. And kind of the difference really that you allude to, the difference between if you think about CIA over DIA is kind of the customer base. Uh, Whereas, you know, you're very familiar with what the CIA does and it's kind of working directly for the president in the kind of the national side of the house. For us, you know, we're the defense side of that uh, equation, some very similar missions, things that we do. Uh, but it is for the chairman, it is for the secretary, and for all the combatant commanders. And so the Defense Intelligence Agency's footprint is uh, about half of us are in the Beltway, uh, providing that support, providing reach back for the COCOMs. Uh, but we also have the Defense Attaché uh, Corps. So we are literally in all the embassies globally. And the core of the analytic support for all the J2s and all the COCOMs are DIA officers. And you have both an analytic mission as well as a collection mission, is that right? Exactly, yeah. So we have technical collection on the Mazent side of the house. So there's some very discrete capabilities that we have that are very unique uh, in terms of how we help uh, provide insights of what's happening on the battlefield. And uh, we also have the Defense Clandestine Service, which is kind of the defense version of what the National Clandestine Service is. Again, different customer base, very complementary to how we integrate. Uh, and when you look at uh, the missions inside the embassies and the teaming and how that how that operates, is uh, it's a very complementary uh, kind of a Venn diagram capability. And then the, really the core piece that you kind of alluded to, which is the analytic piece. So when people think about the Defense Intelligence AG, they think about analyst. Right. Uh, but it's actually there's 10 career fields and really you know, kind of a self-sustaining enterprise in many ways, uh, logisticians, science and technology, engineers, facility engineers, analysts, uh, counterintelligence, human intelligence. Uh, so there's a myriad of capabilities that are at the Defense Intelligence Agency. And, and what, is the, what is the mix like between uniformed military and civilians? So we're about 75% civilian, and that has been a transition over the last couple of decades as we become more civilian and less military. Now, out of that 75% uh, that is civilian, about half of them at some point had a uniform on. So they, they do have some military background, military affinity. But the good thing is even the civilians, we have the opportunity for them to deploy forward. Uh, they are in Iraq. Uh, they are in Afghanistan to go to Syria. Uh, we have them in you know places like Djibouti. So they go forward as well with our military members, and they are integrated uh, in some of the senior analysts that work for uh, for the combatant commanders and for the the joint task force uh, that are forward. Sir, are there issues that DIA looks at more closely than other agencies? It really is, you know, going back to my comment about, okay, what's your core mission? It's foundational intelligence on foreign militaries in the operational environment. Um, to give you a rough sports analogy, if you're getting ready to go someplace, I'm going to give you uh, the laydown of the team's capabilities, who the key players are, what what their what their game plan is, their strategy. You know, for us, it's doctrine. It's all the military capabilities. It's how they're going to fight you, what they're good at, where they struggle. And then the other part is the operational environment. So, again, my sports analogy is I'm going to tell you about the city you're going to go to, neighborhoods to stay out of, where to travel. 
uh, the good restaurants. In this case, I'm going to tell you about the infrastructure, the roads, the airfields, everything that a commander would want to know to be able to go into that environment and operate and move around. All the infrastructure, hard stands, facilities, communications, all that information. And we archive all of that uh, on a number of nations in what we call a modern integrated database. So that's kind of our foundational holdings. Uh, and we just continually add and build that. And I can talk to you a little bit later about uh, kind of our efforts to modernize that. Is there a game time analogy where the war is on and, and you're assisting? Um, there is. I mean, you're always working to update that information. Uh, as you know better than anyone, all the information that's being collected through the uh, the intelligence community on, on, a, on a daily basis uh, is always updating those files and that information. So just to give you one example, if you go back to April of 2018, uh, when the U.S. struck the chemical warfare sites in Syria. So we don't pick those sites. Uh, obviously, that's the combatant commander working with uh, the secretary and the National Command Authority. But when they come back and they look at, okay, what do we know about those locations? Can we validate it? What's the history? That's when you come back to the Defense Intelligence Agency and say, okay, let me tell you everything we know that we've accumulated. What's the collective knowledge about those facilities and are those valid targets? Mm-hmm. One of the things I've noticed is that you have occasionally and I guess somewhat frequently been publishing unclassified papers on key issues. And that's an unusual thing for an intelligence agency. So why did you guys decide to do that? And what are you trying to accomplish? So let me go back to the 80s. Um, I'd love to share with you. We got a great picture of it was the Soviet military power publication. And you probably remember that it had the red cover on it. Matter of fact, I think the the, uh, the museum at DI has a, a copy of us holding that with uh, Secretary Weinberger. And it did that for a couple of years. Matter of fact, when I first came uh, on active duty in 84 and I went to the basic course of Fort Huachuco, one of the things I was issued was Soviet military power. It was this unclassified publication so that you had a, a sense of what your competitor had. And it was also an opportunity for the Defense Department to share that with the greater public, to share it with Congress and others and so that they could have a, you know, a means by which they could share with the public and talk about what our concerns are with, with, with adversaries. So a couple of years ago, um, my predecessor, Lieutenant General Vince Stewart, a Marine, said, probably need to redo these. And so Vince decided, said, hey, let's modernize what was the old Soviet military power. And so they decided, hey, let's go through that process of publishing those again. And so we did the one on Russia, Russian military power. Uh, we did China, and we've recently released uh, Iran. Yeah, as you Iran military powers you have in your hands there. And uh, when we do that, you know, we take it up to the Hill. We provide it to to members over in uh, OSD and others. And so it's an opportunity for them to have a means by which they can say, "Here's the nature of what our competitors, adversaries have in their inventory, and things you should be concerned about." And in a way, we can talk about it unclassified. And we and can talk public, about it, yeah. So to our constituents. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, there's a degree of transparency and ability to share. So these unclassified reports that you're doing with really an eye towards lawmakers and, uh, and folks like that, are they available to the public? Absolutely. You can go to dia.mil and you can download them and read them for yourself and we encourage you to do that. Just maybe two more questions about the agency. I'm going to ask you a question later about the impact of the technology revolution on our adversaries. But I want to ask you about the impact of the technology revolution on DIA and what you're trying to do to take advantage of the rapid changes in technology to make DIA more effective. 
So from a technology standpoint, let me, let me hit one of the probably the, the flagship things that we're working on, uh, which is machine-assisted analytic rapid repository system, or MARS. So I talked to you a little bit about our core mission is foundational intelligence. And so it's all those holdings, all that information that you have on foreign militaries and the infrastructure, the operational environment. So the database that holds all that was designed in 1996. So you kind of know where I'm going. Mm -hmm. A little over a couple of decades, it is dated. It does not scale. So we're in the process right now of how do we build what is the equivalent of the worldwide web? You know, how do we create that proxy for what is available, uh, both, you know, public available information and just the wealth of data that's coming in? And then how do we manage that as live information? Uh, you can imagine how important that would be today. But how do we do that to be able to feed weapon systems like the F-35? You know, when we get information right that's to the in, cockpit. Right to the cockpit. And so it's part about building an enterprise, but it's the ability to apply artificial intelligence, machine learning, because an analyst who's an imagery analyst would have to take, you know, eyes on. You can go through maybe thousands of pictures in a week as opposed to apply machine learning algorithms that identify equipment. And you're going through millions of images a day. And so it's that kind of dynamic is that we're and we're building that right now. And the first kind of the minimal viable product piece of that will be out in uh, in May of this year. And we'll start sharing that with the combatant commanders and it'll allow them to really focus on foundational infrastructure as kind of the initial tranche that we're focused on. And then last question on the organization. What do you look for in civilian officers when you're looking at applicants? What are you, what are you looking for? What do you like to see? Yeah, you're just looking for just uh, an aggressiveness, uh, a sense of inquisitiveness. Um, obviously, you know, they're going to have to come in with good grades and, and shown that they've been responsible. You know, the new uh, kids that are coming out of college but it's those kinds of attributes that someone's that's looking to be a problem solver as they come in. And it's interesting, the demographic, you know, because we go in from you have me as a baby boomer and then we bring in millennialists and now we're into X and Z generations. And so it's causing us really at the, the senior leadership level to take a hard look of how do we lead? Uh, how do we how do we team with them? You know, how do we share? How do we flatten what is normally very hierarchical and how we make decisions and how we think about things? And to make sure that we value their inputs uh, more, uh, not to put a plug in for, for Gallup. Uh, Gallup recently published a book last year called It's the Manager. And it, it is almost like a tutorial to how to understand millennials and how leaders should interact with them. So it's kind of flattening uh, communications across the organization and making sure that we're pulling in uh, their insights because it's an incredibly bright uh, group of folks that come in and join yeah. us. Interesting. Over time, I saw more and more entry-level folks willing to send me emails and same-time messages, right? It's something I would never have done so at the beginning bring of my that career. Up because I get that all the time. One of the things I do every Sunday is I literally sit down at my computer, uh, if I'm not traveling on the road, and I write an email that goes to the entire workforce. Mm, that's great. And so it's kind of what's on my mind. Yeah. Uh, I try to put leadership lessons in it. I, I have a new grandson who's four months old, so you get pictures of my grandson. You hear about my family. Uh, and then you go, here's what my priorities are. Here's what I'm working on. Here's my calendar. Here's what's coming up next week. Matter of fact, last Sunday's note said, I'm coming to see you. So that's in there as well. So it's, a, it's a, an opportunity to share 
what's on my mind, but also pass on 35 plus years of leadership and experience. And the other part is, like you said, you know, people that would never, and it's kind of funny when they, they write the initial email, go, I never thought about writing the director before, but, and the good part is they share things about their family. They share lessons learned. And you also get some things down in the organization going, you might want to look at this. And those insights are priceless. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with General Ashley. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. General, perhaps we can switch gears a little bit here and talk about some key national security issues. And no surprise, I think, in starting with Iran, we're, we're taping this the morning after an Iranian missile strike on U.S. targets in Iraq. And I know that you're very limited in what you can talk about here, but I was wondering if you could give us a sense of how you think the Iranians are thinking about all this. How are the Iranians thinking about how we got here? How the Iranians are thinking about where we are? How the Iranians might be thinking about where we might be going? Do you talk about that at all? I really can't get into that. Uh, we we watch closely what you know the news is discussing and things along those lines, but it's nothing I can really get into right now. But uh, you know, rest assured, the information that we see, our understanding of what is taking place. Uh, the, the members of the IC are feeding that directly into, you know, the chairman, uh, to the combatant command, uh, to the secretary of defense. And so I, I can tell you from my vantage point as a senior member of the IC, we have unencumbered access to, you know, the senior leaders of the defense department and the ability to ensure that uh, we are providing them uh, everything that we know and understand. And a key part of what we do is what I can't necessarily share with you right now, but what you're asking is, yeah, we do those kinds of assessments to make sure that uh, they're able to think through and, you know, ultimately it's uh, provide best military advice. Maybe you can talk about this piece, which is the importance of giving our leadership the adversary's view of the world. Correct. And, and we, whether and we it's make those Iran or Russia or China. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's integral, you know, the ability to understand that and, and you better than anyone understand, you know, one of the most challenging things is there's in the Intel world, you look at capability and intent. Uh, it's much easier to lay out capability. Uh, intent gets a little bit more into the gray space, and it just depends on how exquisite your understanding is. Can you talk a little bit, particularly since we have this wonderful unclassified um, Iran document, can you talk a little bit about Iranian military capabilities and how they've evolved over time? Um, so they got more sophisticated. Uh, obviously, when uh, you look at the weapon systems they have, uh, the ballistic missiles, uh, those have evolved over time, the accuracy and the capabilities that they've built. So it is a it is a very capable military. Um, I was wondering, and, and maybe you can't, but General Soleimani was extraordinarily effective at leading Iran's efforts in the region. And I'm just wondering long-term what his loss might mean for the effectiveness of what the Iranians are able to do outside their borders. Yeah, so obviously a uh, very influential uh, and very hands-on uh, over the, the decades that he led the Quds Force over the last couple of decades. With any change in leadership, there will be obviously some minor perturbations, uh, but uh, organizations survive. We've seen that. I'm, you know, 
historically, anytime you take someone out, uh, there are always going to be someone that steps up into that position. And my, in my experience, it's very difficult to tell whether a successor is going to be more effective or less effective. There is this period of time where they have to learn, right? But it's very difficult to guess whether the successor is going to be better or worse, is my experience in this kind of game. I think that's a fair assessment. I'll talk a little bit about the importance of U.S. forces in Iraq. Iraqi parliament, at least a part of the Iraqi parliament, the Shia part of the Iraqi parliament, voted for us to leave. Nobody really wants that to happen. I don't think senior Iraqi leaders want that to happen. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about why it's so important to the United States to have our forces there for the anti-ISIS fight. Yeah, and you've heard that before from the policy standpoint, you know, the ability to continue to have pressure uh, on ISIS in Iraq, to have pressure on our ISIS in Syria uh, is very important to, to the mission. And as we watch uh, kind of the evolution of ISIS on the ground, uh, as they go through a period of kind of a reset uh, and focused on future operations, it's critical, you know, if you're on the ground, you have better access and better understanding to, uh, to what they may be up to. So ISIS has lost its caliphate. But there's still, there's still a force. Some people have said, um, I had the, the deputy director of the National Counterterrorism Center here not long ago who actually said they're regrouping. So if we were forced to leave Iraq, what kind of rebound would you be worried about in terms of ISIS? And how important is the presence of U.S. military yeah. forces in Iraq? There's a lot of variables there. Um, they're, you know, because there's a coalition of forces that are there that are putting pressure. The Iraqi partners were actually instrumental in, you know, taking down the caliphate. So it's the ability to apply pressure. So there's going to be different variables based on who is there and who's uh, who's doing that work. As you mentioned, the DC uh, or the NCTC, uh, you said deputy, mm-hmm. would come in. Russ Travers, yeah. Yeah. So from a resurgence standpoint, as we look at resurgence, resurgence is when they actually start controlling territory again. So I would say it's it's not at a resurgence stage. But it is in a point of regrouping and looking how they, you know, continue the media message, how they manage the various uh, branches that go through Africa, through the Pacific and other regions like that. And any concern on your part about the Russians trying to take advantage of where we are here? Yeah, I don't really want to get into uh, to that particular issue. What I, what I would say about, you know, Russian activity uh, specifically, it's been interesting uh, when you look at uh, Putin's strategy and the footprint that they had in the 70s and 80s and where they are right now. Um, I've heard people, you know, made the question whether you think he's an opportunist. Um, I think there's a deliberate strategy behind uh, the maneuvers that he is making. Uh, you know, and before the Yom Kippur War in 73, you know, the Egyptians pushed the Russians out. I think it was in the mid-80s that uh, they left uh, Syria and so we see that footprint coming back in, a uh, presence with Assad, a port facility, the ability to project power coming into Syria, a presence off the med. So there's, there's a lot of uh, advantages uh, that Russia and Putin specifically have garnered with the relationship with Syria. So enough on Iran. Russia and China. I'm just wondering if you could give us a sense of, their, of the strategic challenge that they pose to the United States over the long term. How do you see that? Yeah, so when you look at the national defense strategy, and, you know, this is one of the core things that we do for the Defense Intelligence Agency, three major lines of effort. One is how do we increase our lethality? 
The other is expanding relationship with partners and allies. And then the other is really kind of a business practice, but it's all under the context of great power competition. So one of the things that, uh, that we look at is, you know, we look at the M in the dime, but we also have to look at the other instruments of power because it all has an impact. So there's a degree of complexity. And one of the things I think is really powerful is it brings the intelligence community together more because it's not for us in the defense department. We're, you know, obviously laser focused on the military part of it, but we have to pay attention to economics. We have to pay attention to the information sphere and we watch what happens diplomatically. Because if you think about the Belt and Road Initiative for China in particular, moves economically may open the opportunity for a port, which could be eventually a forward stage or base for a navy. So it has an impact on the M. China, very different from Russia. China, much more the superpower in the economic realm. Uh, Russia, obviously, with the number of nukes they get and their legacy role um, as a superpower in the Cold War construct uh, is an important player, but not the economic side. Right. But as you look at the the kind of things that give you the most concern, let me talk about, you know, the domains in which we fight, right? So you have cyber, space, air, maritime, and ground. For the 18 going on 19 years that we've been in the counterterrorism fight, that's really been a ground domain that was contested. So now what you have to think about is all the domains being contested to varying degrees, whether that is symmetric, asymmetric, and emerging domains such as cyber and space, which are going to be absolutely critical. I mean, the dependencies that we have on space. So we watch very closely uh, the investments that both China and Russia make in space. Right now, there's probably 50 different nations that have satellites on orbit. Uh, there's about 13 different uh, nations that have the ability to launch. Uh, and so they're increasing their presence. And one of the things that we put out was a thing called challenges in space. And so the Defense Intelligence Agency, much like the studies that we've done uh, on these countries, we wanted to say, how do we get out to the American public? How do we help them understand the nature of those challenges? And so we put out a publication called Challenges in Space, and I was actually surprised how much information we could get out. We talked about anti-satellite capabilities, co-orbital uh, capabilities, electronic warfare. Um, so a number of threats to the constellations, which you know could be hugely impactful on everything we do every single day. From you know, you pick up your phone, you want to know where you are, uh, your TV, everything else that you know, all the things that that those constellations, those commercial satellites, everything do for you and enable uh, basic functions of the day. So for me, the looking at the contested domains is a critical part of understanding technology and its development. Uh, another big piece of that is the Internet of Things uh, because of the just the simultaneity and the instantaneous ability to reach across the globe and have an impact, which is why the ability to defend your networks to be secure is absolutely critical. And then the other part is kind of the diffusion of uh, weapons and kinds of technology, ballistic missiles, things like that. Because as you watch, you know, China, I think, is the uh, number four in terms of weapon sales globally. Uh, Russia is number two. They're number one in Africa. And so there's a lot of proliferation mm. of those kinds of weapons, ballistic missiles, things like that, conventional military capabilities. Uh, that you didn't have to watch that much in the past, and now you have to have a much more uh, broad perspective on uh, kind of the diffusion of that technology. 
So I wanted to ask you, sir, a question about technology, which we've just been talking about. It's always been a key driver in the weapons, in the development of weapons and how people fight. Is there something different about technology today than it has been historically? I think in some cases the bar is lower, you know, and the ability to um, access some of the technology. And it's not just really, you know, the things that you would think about in a context of kinetics. It's um, bio kinds of things, you know, um, CRISPR, genealogy, developing weapons uh, along those lines that you could do in a lab that you just have to have some good scientists or good chemists or good biologists that are able to do those kinds of things. So it's a number of those things or hacking or cyber. You can have a non-state actor that gets hired by a state actor that, you know, you work from a non-attribution standpoint. NSA did a phenomenal job last year, uh, I think it was last year, uncovering the uh, Intel Research Agency, you know, an arm Mm -hmm. that was uh, operating on behalf of the Russians. And so it's those kinds of things, the diffusion of the technology. And and for, you know, the Defense Intelligence Agency, key mission for us is – Really kind of is the only all source agency as we look at all the uh, you know collection NGA has, the National Security Agency has, the rest of the members of the IC to bring all that together to give you a holistic view of what those threats look like and what the technology looks like. Uh, the other part is, um, and I had a conversation uh, with a couple of folks, a couple of futurists, and I said, Is there something that's coming out that you see as such a game changer that gives you concern? And they said not necessarily that as much as it is how do you operationalize it and so when we talk about okay who's got the lead in hypersonics who's got the fastest computers who is cracking quantum um, over the course of the next decade i think you'll see a number of nations that will have those capabilities Uh, hypersonics obviously china russia uh, are moving in that direction and i think you'll see those capabilities over the next 10 years key thing for us is how do you understand it? How does it operate? And then, you know, how do you defeat it? What's the defeat mechanism? So for us, it's it's understanding how the system works, making sure that there's not a game-changing technology that shows up on the battlefield that we didn't see and that we can't feed back to, uh, to the Defense Department to go, this is how this operates, and then we're going to team with you on how we beat it. The civilian technologies that the Chinese are going after in a significant way, whether it's AI or machine learning or bio or any number of things. Do you follow those as well because of the potential military applications down the road? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, A lot of that stuff is dual use. And, you know, some of the things we'd be concerned about is just performance enhancement. Um, Kind of a, maybe a bad analogy, but for, for those that are old enough to remember Universal Soldier, uh, back with Dolph Lundgren and Jean-Claude Van Damme. I mean, that kind of science fiction is science reality. Then you get into a lot of ethical issues in terms of who would actually apply uh, those kinds of things. So in other words, how do I make somebody stronger, uh, increase their endurance? Then at some point in the coming decades, there'll be the machine-human cognitive interface uh, to allow you to make decisions, to process information more. So we watch all of that. Uh, to bring all that together to understand, you know, what are the what are the totality of capabilities, uh, not only on individual performance but on technology, uh, for nations that may be competitors or adversaries. So, General, I understand DIA played an important role in the Baghdadi operation. Can you talk about that? We did. So when they when they got the remains and the DNA, uh, we actually have the ability to take labs in and have them forward deployed, and so we have that capability that is in theater. And so the DNA actually comes back to DIA 
and we had the ability to make the, the positive identification on Baghdadi. And the technology has gotten so sophisticated that what we did with uh, the bin Laden remains, which took hours, yes, it did. I remember. literally yeah. got down to minutes to be able to do that. Wow. So from a science and technology standpoint, um, it's, it's pretty mouth-watering some of the capabilities uh, that the team has and how we support not only conventional but the soft forces uh, that are in theater. General, you've been um, absolutely terrific with your time, and I just wanted to ask you one more question. What would you want the American people to know about the men and women of the Defense Intelligence Agency? I only pause because it's kind of an emotional thing to talk about. I think the best way to, to say is, we got your back. When, when somebody asks me, why do you do this? Answer's pretty easy. It's my kids. And so I, I try to see every new course uh, of officers coming to DIA. My first slide is, why are you here? What's your why? And then I tell them what mine is. And I say, it's, think about a bullseye, and in the middle of that bullseye, that concentric circle, is my family, my kids. And then you go out, and then it's my cousins and my uncles and my aunts, and before you know it, it's 330 million Americans. And they're very agnostic about what they do. They have a passion for it. You know that very well. Mm-hmm. And they come in, and they put their heads down, and they row hard so that uh, those 330 million Americans can pursue their hopes and dreams. General, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank Thanks, you. Michael. I appreciate it. That was General Robert Ashley. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Jake Rosen. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morrell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey.